one of the issues that we deal with is trying to relate to different seasons of the year, trying to relate to the calendar as we're supposed to. The three weeks is obviously a time of sadness, a time of focusing on tragedy. And there are elements of it that we usually find not that difficult to get involved in, and then there are parts that are quite more difficult. Meaning to say, the Churban bias, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, involved a number of aspects to us as a people. The first is the fact that at the time, Josephus tells us almost a million people were slaughtered. That means our nation, our people, between the famine, between the slavery, between the straight murder, a huge segment of our nation was slaughtered. And for us, even though it's almost 2,000 years later, it's, it's not that far removed and not that difficult for us to look back, feel it, and cry. Another element of this time of year to focus on is simply the fact that we're still in exile. And that for 2,000 years, we suffered on indescribable tortures, any method of hurting another human being, any diabolical means of killing another person was used wantonly on the Jews. And when you read any short segment of our history, you begin to see the oppression, the bloodshed, and as a caring, feeling person, it's very easy to feel the pain. It's also not that difficult to feel the fact that we're in a foreign land, no matter how good we have it, we're greatly affected. Our morals, our <clears throat> principles, our way of life, our outlook on life are greatly affected by the society we're in. So those elements <clears throat> of the loss, of the destruction, of the fact that the temple <clears throat> isn't here, that we're not there, are very clear, very obvious, and easy to focus on. But there's a huge part <clears throat> of what we're supposed to be focusing on during the three weeks, and specifically during Tishabov that for most of us is difficult to really feel and difficult to really understand. And that is that we do not have the base amygdash. <clears throat> that physical entity, the edifice, <clears throat> where carbonus sacrifices were brought, we don't have the avoda, <clears throat> we don't have the service, we don't have the konim, we don't have the levium. Three times a year, instead of going up <clears throat> to Yerushalayim, we remain in our homes. And we read about it, we think about it, but to feel the loss, for most of us, it's difficult. Listen, Baruch Hashem, I learn, I daven, I, you know, my kids are in good yeshivas. So you tell me that there's pain, there's torture, you tell me that there's fear, I understand that. But the fact that the base of Migdash, the fact that a building, the temple isn't there, it's difficult to relate to, difficult for us to feel. And the question is, what can we do to better understand it? And I'd like to focus on something that I think will be very, very helpful for this exact purpose. Sefer Yeshaya opens up Chazon Yeshaya Ben Amatz. This is the prophecy, the Chazon, the vision that Yeshaya has for his people. And a Chose is one who sees, and in it, Yeshaya foretells what's going to happen, the destruction, everything that's going to come forward. And in Pasuk 2, he says, Shemu Shemayim Vazinu Aretz. Yeshaya the Novi says, listen, Shemayim, vazinu aretz and land, lend me your ear. Ki Hashem diber, because Hashem spoke, bonim gidalti. Hashem says, I rose, I brought up children, v'romamti, I gave them great honor, exalted them, v'impashubi, and they sinned against me. 
Yeshai is using an expression as if to say, let the heavens listen and let the earth lend its ear. And Rashi explains to us that what in fact Yeshai is doing is not a metaphor. He's not speaking words to be understood poetically. He's calling on the heavens and the earth to be witnesses. <clears throat> let Shamayim, let the heavens listen, let them be a witness. Vazino Oretz, and let the land lend its ear, let it listen. They will be witnesses. What are they witnesses to? That Hashem says, I gave you great honor. I brought you up. Everything that I said that I would do, says Hashem, I did. And you, the Jewish nation, rebelled against me. And with these words, <clears throat> Yeshaya begins the <clears throat> rebuke, begins the words of prophecy, begins telling the Jewish people what's going to happen. And one of the things that's <clears throat> unusual about the way <clears throat> Yeshaya says it is that he changed from a very exact expression <clears throat> that we're quite familiar with that's used before. In Parsha Zazinu, <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu, on the very last day of his life, turns to the Jewish people and says almost the exact expression but differently. Hazinu Hashamayim Vadabeira. Let the heavens lend their ears and I'll speak. And the land shall hear the words of my mouth. Again, there too, Rashi tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was not speaking allegorically. He wasn't speaking metaphorically as if they using a, a literary device. Moshe Rabbeinu was calling on the heavens and the earth to be witnesses. But different than Yeshaya, he used the opposite expression. Says Moshe, Hazinu Hashamayim, let the heavens open their ears. Hazinu from Hazana, from listen, as if to lend me your ear. Vadabera, Vetishma Aretzimrifi, and the land will hear. But he used the Lushan of Hazana by heaven, lend me your ear by heaven, and let the land hear. He used the Lushan Tishma by Aretz. And what Yeshaya did was use the exact expression, but reversed. <clears throat> Instead of saying, let the heavens lend me their ear, he said, let the earth lend me their ear, <clears throat> and let the <clears throat> land hear. What Yeshaya did <clears throat> was use the same concept, the same idea, but reversed it. <clears throat> he said, Shemu Shemayim, let the heavens listen, and let the <clears throat> land lend me your ear. The opposite of Moshe, Moshe said, let the heaven lend me their ear and let the land listen. And Rashi points out that this is not a nuance. This is not some little, small, minute point. <clears throat> explains Rashi that what Yeshaya was doing was extremely calculated. Because in fact, explains Rashi that what Moshe did hundreds of years earlier was he assigned the heavens and the earth to be witnesses. Heavens and earth, you are to give warning to the Jewish nation. You are to be the witnesses. And what Yeshaya was doing hundreds of years later was calling on the witnesses. Come forward. Moshe assigned you earlier. I'm calling on you now to come forward and bear witness as you were assigned to do. And the reason why Yeshaya changed the language is because the witnesses would have been invalidated. You see, the land would have had an excuse and the heavens would have had an excuse why their witnesses as functional witnesses wouldn't work and explains Rashi why because there is a concept called edus mechuvenes edim witnesses have to be witnesses together 
In a Jewish court, there is a concept of edus. Edus is considered not just evidence, but it's considered fact. If two kosher edim come into a bezdin, and they go through the whole process, the judges do drisha v'chakira, they ask them the various questions, they go through the whole steps. If, in fact, their edus is accepted, the words that those witnesses said are considered factual, as if the judges themselves saw that event. If two witnesses walk in and tell us that Ruvain killed Shimon, and we accept their testimony, we will then say that Ruvain is Chayev Misa. We know for a fact that he did it, because once you meet the requirements of being a witness, then in fact your edus is accepted. It's literally as if the judges themselves saw it, and they'll act upon it. However, there are great details in accepting edus. When you're dealing with a capital crime, they have to be edus mechavenis, they have to be saying that they witnessed the same thing in the same time, in the same way. So for instance, let's assume for a minute that two witnesses come in and say, we saw Ruvain kill Shimon. But one witness says, I saw him stab Shimon. And the other witness says, I saw him shoot Shimon. Those two witnesses don't join together because they're effectively being witnesses about different things. One is saying that he saw a murder via stabbing. The other is saying he saw a murder via shooting. They don't join together. But really, Adis is far more complex and far more detailed. If the two witnesses say, we witnessed the same event, we both saw Ruvain pull out a gun and he shot Shimon. But the two witnesses were standing from opposite windows and they didn't see each other. Because they didn't see each other, they didn't join together. And it's a technicality, but in that situation, they don't count as witnesses. They're not accepted. We may have our suspicions, we have our reasons to believe it happened, but in terms of accepting Adus, it has to be 100% congruent. They have to witness it together, and they have to say it in a way that's fully acceptable. And in fact, the criteria for accepting witnesses are very, very exacting. What the Bayesian will do is ask various questions and try to find the most minute differences because the job of a judge is in fact to find innocent, innocent, guilty, guilty. And the demand is that these Adim be 100% together and 100% congruent. Explains Rashi, this is why heaven and earth would get out of being witnesses. You see, the heaven, when it would be called forward to say, did the Jewish people rebel? Did they not do what they're supposed to? The heaven would say, I'm not sure, but I can't join with the Oritz. You know why? Because many years earlier, when Moshe called upon me, he said to me, Hazinu Hashemayim, lend me your ear. Lend me your ear is a very different type of listening than just listen. You see, the Shemayim, the heaven would say, I was called as one type of witness. The Oritz, the land would say, I was called as a different kind of witness. All Moshe said to me was, listen. Those are differences. There's a difference between really lending me your ear and really listening and just sort of like being there. But we weren't together. 
It's no different than if we were in two different windows. We both witness the same thing, but that's not enough. Edom <clears throat> have to be totally mechuvenes, have to be totally together. <clears throat> we were not together because Moshe <clears throat> assigned us different tasks. He said to me, says the Shemayim, <clears throat> he said to me, lend me your ear. The land says, he said to me something different. We don't join together. Therefore, explains Rashi, what Yeshaya did was get rid of that excuse. <clears throat> he reversed the languages. <clears throat> he now called on Shemayim with a language of listen. He now called <clears throat> on the land with a language of lend me your ear, so that <clears throat> now you see that those expressions are interchangeable. And he took away the excuse <clears throat> that the heavens and the earth would have not to bear witness. Now, in fact, they had to bear witness. Now, in fact, they'd be edus mechavenis. They'd be acceptable witnesses in court. And explains Rashi that that is why Yeshaya used almost the exact expression as did Moshe, but he changed it. And I believe that this Rashi is quite difficult to understand. Number one, the sun, the moon, the earth are inanimate objects. What does it mean, witness? What does it mean? I call on the heavens and the earth as witness. And <clears throat> wait a minute, they're not, they can't be mechovenes, they're not really not together because they saw from a different window, use a different expression. The heaven isn't a witness. The earth <clears throat> isn't a witness. They're rocks, they're stones, they're molecules, they're atoms. They're not live, living beings. Question number one. But question number two is this is what we call a dray. <clears throat> Meaning to say, if I call two witnesses and I said, gentlemen, I want you to witness, I'm going to loan some money, <clears throat> I want you to witness this. And I said to one, please pay careful attention. And the other one, I said, okay, just make sure you watch. No judge in the world would throw that <clears throat> out of court. Well, you used a different expression to the two witnesses. You called one with a language of <clears throat> listen carefully, and the other one you called casually. It's what we call a dre. It's a kind of dre that, I don't know, maybe if it was an extremely <clears throat> meticulous judge and you really demanded the nth degree. Is it possible to argue such a position? Maybe. But really, it's not what you'd call a solid position. So whatever this means that the heavens and the earth would be witnesses, what does it mean that they would dray, they would use this trick to get out of it and say, not edus mechavenes as a technicality and witnesses that we don't meet the exact criteria? It doesn't sound yosher, doesn't sound straight, doesn't sound like something Hashem should accept. So to understand this, what I believe we need to do is look at the world with vastly different eyes and view the world from a very different perspective. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting little event that occurred. Ignat Semmelweis was a physician he now, in the medical history, he's known as a famous individual. He was <clears throat> operating, he was actually a young physician in the Vienna General Hospital <clears throat> in the 1850s. And he was f- involved in obstetrics and <clears throat> he was in the maternity ward. And at a certain point, he was the head resident. <clears throat> he was very, very involved in what was happening in the Vienna Hospital at the time. Now, in these days, in the 1850s, childbed fever was a huge epidemic. Childbed fever meant that after a woman gave birth, within a day or two or three, she came down with a fever, and many, many women died. Doctors then didn't know exactly the cause. The truth is that much of medicine then was very rudimentary. There was no understanding of germ theory. There was no understanding of bacteria. Really, all they dealt with were the symptoms. If a 
patient showed inflammation, that meant there was too much blood in that area, what they would do is bleed the patient, take out blood, put on leeches or <clears throat> open a cut. <clears throat> if a patient showed fever, that meant that they were too hot. You cool them down, <clears throat> give them bath, and etc. <clears throat> but the understanding that there was a cause to the disease and a cause that couldn't be seen by human eyes was unknown. It was unknown and therefore assumed not to be there. But the problem that Ignat Semmelweis faced was that women were dying left, right, and center. At certain points, 100% of the women in a particular ward of a hospital after giving birth would die. Over many years, it actually ended up being closer to 10%. But that means almost one out of 10 women who would give birth would die with this childbed fever. And it was a huge problem. But what troubled him even more than the problem itself was that in the Vienna General Hospital, where he was the head resident, what was happening was there were two wards in the maternity section, quite large, hundreds of women in each. And in his ward, where he was really in charge, the death rate was about 1 in 10. But in the other ward, which was Samoch, right nearby, effectively the same, the death rate was not even a tenth of that. Somewhere in the vicinity of 2% of the women died, maybe 1%. But his ward had five times, or even sometimes ten times as many women dying. And it perturbed him. What is it? Everything that they were doing in the other ward was identical to his ward. The way they were dealing with the women, the way they came in. The only distinction was the fact that in the other ward, those few other few hundred women were being attended to by midwives. His ward was being effectively, they were being dealt with by doctors, but otherwise there was no difference. And to make sure that there was no difference, he neutralized everything. He made sure that they used the same birthing technique, the same birthing positions. He made sure that they used the same type of linens. And no matter what he did, the death rate in his ward remained five times as much as in the other one. And it troubled him, and it troubled him, and he couldn't answer it, and he didn't understand why. At a certain point, he left the hospital. He was so bothered that for four months he took a break. And when he came back, what he discovered was more troubling than what he had realized before. When he came back, he found out that during the four months that he was gone, the death rate in his ward fell to be equal to the other ward. And when he was there... It was something like 1 in 10, and when he was gone, it was 1 in 50. And he couldn't understand it. And he studied, and he studied, and he thought, and he thought. And one day, something happened that opened his eyes. There was another physician who was involved in regular autopsies, who was actually a coroner. And this physician, when teaching the technique for how to go through a autopsy, had another student hold a knife, and he was showing the other student, and the student cut the professor, cut the doctor. And that doctor, within a few weeks, contracted the exact illness that seemed to be childbed fever. And Ignat Semmelweis said, wait a minute, I get it. The doctor was operating on a woman who had that disease. The student took a scalpel that was soaked with the blood of that woman, cut the doctor, and when that doctor was cut, the disease got into his blood. 
It must be that this disease is being transferred from dead patients, from patients who had the disease, to people who don't. And then he did the rest of the math. You see, in those days, the only real research that a doctor was able to do was to operate on cadavers. There was no knowledge of real germ theory, no knowledge of bacteria. They didn't have microscopes. So their research was done by operating on patients who died. They would open up the body and see what various things had happened. And on a daily basis, Ignaz Semmelweis, as the head resident, would spend hours operating on cadavers. Once he was done operating, he would then go up to do the various deliveries. And he realized that he was the one who was bringing the disease from the dead bodies to back to the live women. Immediately, he said, we have to stop this. <clears throat> Obviously, there's something that's coming from the cadaver, <clears throat> from the dead body, and he instituted that every doctor in the ward <clears throat> must wash their hands in a chlorine mix to kill whatever it is, and as soon as he instituted that, <clears throat> the death rate in his ward dropped to one in a hundred, dropped to lower than the other ward. And he discovered that it's something <clears throat> in the body of another diseased person that's contaminating, that's being put into the body of a live person. And this medical science is known as the precursor for the germ theory. But listen to the words that Ignat Semmelweis said. My God, how many patients have I sent to the grave? You see, if you're a physician, but you're unaware that they're bacteria, that they're parasites, if you're unaware that there's an entire world that you don't see with the naked eye but that exists, then you're unaware of the damage that you're bringing. You're unaware that when you go from the autopsy and don't clean your clothing, don't wash your hands, and then go to a woman who's healthy and alive, you are the one who's bringing these germs, bringing these parasites, and you don't realize the damage that you're doing. And what medical science learned in those years between the 1850s and maybe the next 30, 40 years was that there's an entire world that we don't see, but that will kill you or help you, but it has real, real parts, real rules, real laws, and there's an entire world now that we know of as microbiology because most diseases, most states of unhealthiness come from these various things that the human eye doesn't see. And what mankind discovered with the microscope was a whole new world. And the reality is that we today live in a very, very sophisticated world. We live in a world that sending a man to the moon is ancient history. We live in a world where blowing up a city with a small bomb the size of a desk is a given. Excuse my facetiousness, but we live in a world where microwave popcorn is possible. But microwave popcorn is an astonishing change in reality. You take a bag of popcorn, put it into your microwave, push the button, and what happens is that the transducer emits microwaves, as in tiny waves, you don't see them. Those tiny waves cause the electrons to speed up. And because they speed up, they cause friction. That friction heats and heats and heats until, bing, you open the door and your freshly popped popcorn is there waiting. I don't see microwaves. I don't see electrons. <clears throat> but I put in an unpopped bag of popcorn. Two minutes later, I pull out a fully popped bag. And Western man today is leagues ahead 
miles ahead in understanding the physical world than he was a hundred years ago. And we know about entire worlds that my eye doesn't see, but that fully exist. And I'd like to share with you that as much as we are sophisticated and as much as we understand about the physical world, we are blind as bats to the spiritual world. The Rambam in Hilchos Yusodi Torah says, Every star and every planet, they all have a nefesh. They have a live substance to them. The day of a huskel, they have wisdom and understanding. The sun, the moon, the earth are not merely inanimate objects. There's a live, vibrant part that's knowledgeable, that's an understanding part. It's a nefesh. A live, vibrant part with day and seichel. And that part is what tells the moon what to do. The malach, so to speak, that spiritual entity is what tells the sun when to rise and remain on its course. The stars in orbit remain as they're supposed to move, as they're supposed to, because each one has a spiritual entity, a spiritual counterpart, counterpart that directs it, that tells it what to do, that keeps it doing what it's supposed to do. And the Rambam explains to us in Hilchas Avodas Kachavim that this actually was how Avodah idol worship began. And we look at idol worship as some kind of primitive, hmm, foolish, bow down to a totem pole, hmm, nar. <clears throat> explains the Rambam that these were very, very sophisticated people. Enosh, <clears throat> in the generation of Enosh, and people made a mistake. They recognized that the sun has this powerful spiritual entity that tells it what to do. And they saw the moon and recognized that it has a spiritual entity that tells it what to do. And they recognized that these forces were created by Hashem, and that Hashem wanted them to be honored, and therefore He put them into positions of honor. And therefore these people made a mistake and began serving these forces, not because they were looking to do wrong, but because that was a way to give honor to Hashem. Look at what Hashem created, and they would bow and do various things to these forces because they thought they were giving honor to Hashem thereby. The next generation made a worse mistake, worse mistake, until it turned into actual idol worship. That explains the Rambam, idol worship in the good old days was a very sophisticated, very knowledgeable thing. And you were trying to get that force to work for you. You see, that force, the spiritual entity of the sun or the moon, has free will. It has dea, it has knowledge, it has understanding. It generally will do what it's supposed to, but not always, and it doesn't have to. And when ancient man looked at the sun, he said, that's astonishing. It always moves. The earth is always doing what it should do. The moon is always pulling the tides exactly on time. Who told the earth to constantly revolve around the sun or the sun around the earth? Who told the upper and celestial beings to constantly do what they're supposed to do? Who keeps all of the orbits? What ancient man saw was that each of these bodies had a spiritual force, had knowledge and understanding. An ancient man, some of them made a mistake, and some of them misunderstood, but everyone got this. And Rashi and Dvarim explains that when Moshe Benu turned to the Ben Yisrael and says, Haidosi making Shemaim and are its heaven and earth witness, and what he was saying was 
that spiritual entity is going to bear witness, and every Jew's end got it. They recognize it. They realize that the earth has a sar, has a malach, has a force. The sun, too, has a force. Because when they looked at the world, they said it can't just be. It can't just be moving in orbits, constantly always doing what it's supposed to do. Hashem put a force in charge of it. Moshe Rabbeinu was calling on them to be witness. Moshe Rabbeinu was calling on them to be the ones to testify many years later. But what we need to understand is one step further. The Elvis de Reb Nosson, says as follows, O Shalom Bimromov, Hashem makes peace in the upper world. We say that in Shemon Esrei three times a day, O Shalom Bimromov, Hashem makes peace in the upper worlds. What does it mean that Hashem makes peace in the upper worlds? <clears throat> Explains the Elvis de Reb Nosson, what that means is that when Hashem creates each malach, each angel, each spiritual force, Hashem gives each one a unique, distinct name. Hashem creates one Gavriel, one Michael, one Raphael, and every single spiritual entity that Hashem creates, Hashem gives it a unique name. Why? Because it explains the Avastir of Nosen, if Hashem were to call 12 Malachim Gavriel, and then one day Hashem would call, Gavriel, come here. 12 Malachim would come forward. Hashem would have to say, 11 of you, go back. I meant this, Gavriel. And that would cause jealousy. That would cause jealousy, and that would lead to fighting. Hashem is Oseh Shalom B'mrom, of Hashem makes peace in the upper world. By giving each spiritual entity a separate name, Hashem makes peace because there won't be that jealousy. It won't lead to the fighting. And that's why Hashem gives each one a separate name. Now, if you think about this concept, it should be rather perplexing. I could be jealous of you. Why? You have, and I don't. You have money, I don't have money. You have honor, I don't have money. You have whatever it may be. But the reason why I'm jealous of you is because I'm in a physical body. I'm blinded by materialism. I greatly value whether it be honor or money or being attractive or handsome or whatever my value system is. But this Alvaz Dereb is talking about malachim. What's talking about this? Angels, they don't have a body. They're not blinded by physicality. <clears throat> How can an angel be jealous? And to understand this medrash, I think we have to focus on a little bit better understanding what dea, what understanding is, what haskel, what wisdom is, and we have to understand a little bit better the upper worlds. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. <clears throat> Psychologists are much familiar with a concept called theory of mind. Theory of mind is an understanding that if I know something, it doesn't mean you know something. And my awareness that I know something, I could still be aware that you don't know it. Or the opposite, you may know something and I may not know something because we're different consciousness, we have different minds, and we're apart. Well, that's obvious. In little children, it's not clear at all. And psychologists have done this little study where they'll take two actors and they'll have, film them. The actor will walk into a room, look around, sees that no one's there. The actor will then take a ball and put it under a hat on a table. And then the actor walks out. A moment later, another actor walks in, picks up the hat, takes the ball from under the hat, and moves it instead on top of the shelf. 
A moment after that, the first actor comes back into the room and they ask the child watching this video, where will that person, the first actor, look for the ball? Where will he look? Under the age of four, almost every child will say, he's going to look on the shelf where the ball is. Any child age 10 or over understands that the first actor put the ball under the hat. He doesn't know that the second actor came in and put it on the shelf. The fact that I, the viewer, know where the ball is doesn't mean that the person coming into the scene knows what I know. And this understanding that I know something, but the person I'm watching doesn't know it, is something that develops in the human mind after a while. Primates typically are not able to make this distinction. Monkeys can't until the age of four. Typically, little children can't. And in various forms of autism or children on the spectrum, the concept of theory of mind is very difficult. For many children, as they develop, knowing that just because I know something doesn't mean you know it isn't so simple. And the theory of mind, basically, to us is obvious But that concept is that my identity is separate from your identity. My knowledge is separate from your knowledge. And there's another part to that. My will is different than your will. You may like vanilla ice cream. I may not. But even if you like vanilla ice cream and I like vanilla ice cream, you may decide to eat the ice cream and I may not. But the reason for that is is because you and I are distinct You and I are individuals with our own consciousness, with our own identity, with our own will. And every malach, every spiritual force that exists is as distinct from one another as you, I. You are from I, I from you. Because each malach has its own identity, its own will, its own wishes. And if you'd like to understand this, it's really quite simple. angels aren't jealous one of the other because they see Hashem meets out everything with justice and therefore there's nothing to be jealous of. But if Hashem were to call 12 different angels, Gavriel, and say, Gavriel, come forward, and 11 of them got pushed back, I don't mean you, I mean you, that affront that I was there and I was pushed back is such a difficult thing for an individual to bear that it would have made them jealous. Do they have a body? No but they have a consciousness, they have a will, they were there right next to Hashem, and Hashem pushed them back, and he, that guy gets to say, what's who? Why, is it, why he, yes, and me, no, we're the same. We're not different. Why does he get to be there? And apparently, even angels would have jealousy in that point, and I believe there's something for us to gain from this. You can certainly focus on how jealousy works at the real main reason why people are jealous is because they feel something was taken from them. But I believe there's a much bigger understanding for us to take from this. And that is to focus on something that we do on a daily basis, something we call tefillah, davening. If you pay attention to the words from after Baruch Hu till Shema, you'll hear words that are describing scenes that are so foreign that it's difficult to even relate to. All of the angels together in voice scream, the words of Hashem are living, and God is the king of the universe. All of them are beloved, all of them are clear-sighted, all of them are giborim, and all of them do the will of Hashem with tremendous fear. All of them open their mouth 
Bekedusha of Tara, Beshira of Azimra. And if you read the words, we're describing a heavenly event. And if you pay attention to the Rosh Hashanah Davening, you'll hear it even more, a description of thousands and thousands of groups, each group of malachim containing millions and millions of malachim, each one singing shira, each one singing praise to Hashem. And here's the question. What kind of honor, what kind of praise is that to Hashem? Imagine that I were to record my voice, I were to say the words, Kadosh, 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 Hashem, Tzavakos, Melochal Arts Kivadon. Holy, holy, holy is Hashem. And then I would hook up one million speakers, and I would play back my voice on a million speakers. Would that be an honor to Hashem? It's one voice, one thing, just spoken through a million speakers. Explains the Rambam, that's not what happens in Shemayim. Each of those spiritual entities, each malach, each angel, is a dea, a das nifrad, a separate identity. It's wise, it's understanding, it has its own agenda, and certainly its own will. And whatever level of wisdom that it has, it recognizes Hashem as much as it can. And each one as a unique individual, each one with its own life force, each one with its own will, recognizes Hashem and sings praise to Hashem because they recognize the goodness, the greatness of Hashem. And when you focus on what's happening in the tefillah, in the davening, you're beginning to focus on a vastly different world that we don't see. But much like Western man discovered in the past 100, 150 years, that there are entire worlds that my eye doesn't see, what we have to become more attuned to is the entire world of spirituality. Every physical component has a spiritual counterpart. The Derech Hashem explains that not a single rock can exist, not something keeping it in existence. When a blade of grass grows, Chazal tells us, a malach tells it to grow, because when Hashem created the world, He created many, many levels. And every physical entity, Hashem created a spiritual counterpart, and that spiritual counterpart is not a robot. It has its own will, its own knowledge, its own understanding, and it's given directions. But we have one more step. The Chef Schmeitzer, in his introduction, asks a famous question. Chazal tell us that before Hashem created the world, Hashem asked permission from the Malachim, from the angels. Long before Hashem made the physical world, Hashem made the spiritual world, and legions and legions of angels were there, and Hashem asked them permission. Shall I create man? Should we make this thing called Adam, man. The Malachim asked, what is the nature of this man? Explains Hashem, he's different than you. He has the capacity to rise to the heights or fall to the depths. Whatever level you're at, whatever level of understanding, whatever recognition you have, you are static. Man is different. Man is going to be put into a physical world. He's much like you with he has understanding, he has a will, but he's going to put into a, be put into a physical world where he's going to be blinded and he's going to be put into a physical body to allow him to make choices. <clears throat> and those choices will shape him to be what he will be for eternity. He could end up making <clears throat> all the right choices and be so great that you will not be evil, evil, able to look at him or he can make the wrong choices <clears throat> and be lower than the low 
he, unlike anyone else in creation till this point, is able to determine his destiny. And then the Malachim said, absolutely not, don't do it. Don't do it. And Hashem said, I'm doing it, it's my wisdom, and Hashem did it. And Hashem said, I don't understand. Hashem, in complete humility, asked the Malachim permission. Obviously, Hashem doesn't need permission, but it's a sort of formality to show honor. And the Malachim say, no, no, don't do it. Why did the Malachim say no? Hashem knows what's right. Hashem knows what's proper. Hashem knows what's good. Hashem wants to make this entity out of humility. Hashem asks for permission, so to speak. And the Malachim say, no, don't do it. And against their will, Hashem creates man. Why in the world would the Malachim, the angels, say no? <clears throat> Explains the Shev Shmaitza, because what Hashem was doing was not just creating man. Hashem was <clears throat> putting man into a unique position in creation. Hashem was giving man the keys to creation. The entire physical world, the entire spiritual world is now going to be dependent upon man. <clears throat> if man elevates himself, he himself becomes elevated, and the world <clears throat> along with him becomes elevated. But if he turns the opposite, he destroys himself and destroys the world himself. You see, when Hashem created Adam, <clears throat> it was B'Tselem Elokim. Hashem is a creator. Hashem is one who takes from nothing and brings forward something. <clears throat> Hashem is the creator of everything. When Hashem made man, Hashem made man in the image of Hashem as a little creator. But man can't create anything. But if Hashem makes the world dependent upon him, if man chooses properly, <clears throat> he grows and the world itself becomes elevated, becomes lo- lofty and higher, then what man is being given the opportunity to be is a creator, <clears throat> one who brings energy into it, <clears throat> one who elevates one who takes something from a potential and brings it into an actual, he's acting in a manner of a creator. And explains to Shev Shmaitzah, when Hashem said to the Malachim, shall we do it? They said, absolutely not. Granted, it's wonderful if man chooses as he should. If man accomplishes and grows, it's wonderful. But what if he turns bad? <clears throat> what if he turns against what you're supposed to do? It's not just he that he's destroying, the world itself, the physical world, <clears throat> the spiritual world, everything is dependent upon man. And the Malachim said, don't do it, it's too risky. Shem said, that's my wisdom, I'm going to do it anyway. And that, in fact, is what happened. But let's focus on this very, very clearly. When Hashem gave permission to man, He gave him the keys to creation, and each of the Malachim were terrified. Why? Because they have a drive to exist. There's a drive for self-preservation. As I wish to remain alive, so too does a spiritual entity, does a malach, does a sar, do any of these ofanim v'chayos kodesh. They all have wisdom, they all have understanding, they all have will, and they all desire to remain alive. And therefore they said to Hashem, don't do it. And I believe that's the answer for Yeshaya, for Shemayim v'aretz. Do you know what Yeshaya was afraid of? He was afraid, in fact, that when Moshe used a language, <clears throat> he said to the heavens <clears throat> a particular expression. <clears throat> what Moshe said to the heavens was, <clears throat> Moshe said to the heavens, Hazinu, lend me your ear. He said to the land, listen. <clears throat> the spiritual entity <clears throat> that kept the sun, <clears throat> kept the earth doing what it's supposed to do, was being called as a witness. 
<clears throat> but if, in fact, Yeshaya would now call on them as witnesses, they would have an excuse. No, 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 no. We're not Edis Mokovenis. No, 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 one second. <clears throat> Use one language for me, another language for my friend. We're not really together. <clears throat> it discounts the Edis. Is it a dre? It's absolutely a dre. <clears throat> not totally, totally wrong. Not to, there's a basis for it. Why would they have done it? Because they recognize that if the Jewish nation sinned, as Yeshaya was accusing them, it spelled destruction for the world, the physical world, the spiritual world, <clears throat> the earth, the sun, and every <clears throat> one of the celestial beings, the malachim behind them, and everything was going to come to an end. And these <clears throat> malachim, when no Gea they had an agenda, <clears throat> their desire to remain alive, <clears throat> their desire to remain in existence would have made them say something that had a basis. It wasn't totally corrupt, but it was a little bit, <clears throat> as we'd say, a little bit of a dre. And because Yeshaya was afraid of that, he closed up that opening. <clears throat> he used the opposite expression for each. <clears throat> now both the heavens and the earth have been used with both expressions. And now that dre, <clears throat> that little twist, that loophole has been closed. And this concept is very, very significant and very, very eye-opening. And I'll share with you why. One of the difficulties that we have as human beings are relating to Hashem, appreciating the awe of Hashem. The Rambam tells us that one of the fastest, easiest ways for a person to come to real Yerushalayim and real awe of Hashem is to study the physical world. When you study the earth, 8,000 miles across, a planet that's so huge, that's so vast, and then you recognize that that planet compared to the sun is nothing because the sun is 800,000 miles across. And you recognize that the sun is but one of many, many stars in the sky. As a matter of fact, one of 100 billion stars in our own little galaxy. And our own galaxy is but one of a hundred billion galaxies. And the night sky that's so busy is filled with untold amounts of stars constantly in orbit, constantly moving, constantly doing what they're supposed to be doing across a vast expanse of 13 billion light years and ever expanding. When you study that, you become awed. You say to yourself, who created all of this? Who maintains all of this? And you fall on your face in abject humility and you say, Your works are phenomenal, so beyond my comprehension that I'm awed. But then you open up different vistas. You open a biology textbook and you study a cell and you study the mitochondria and you study the various parts and you recognize that one cell in the human body is far more complex than New York City. There are more systems, more parts, more things that could go right or go wrong in it than an entire city. And you recognize that the human body is made up of trillions and trillions of such cells. And the pancreas and the liver and the heart, each one do its job on such a vast, sophisticated level with such complex cascades of chemicals that move and change and go through various processes. When you recognize it's not just a vast world that's so expansive, but it's such a complex world, you have a different level to that awe. And then explains the Rambam in Hilchos Yisodeh Torah, once you understand that the physical world is but the tip of the iceberg, then you begin to really feel an awe of Hashem. 
because every physical entity has a spiritual counterpart <clears throat> much greater than it, <clears throat> that obeys, that does what it's supposed to, that has das and dea, has knowledge, has understanding. <clears throat> it's a separate entity. <clears throat> it has its own knowledge and mind. <clears throat> theory of mind is that its understanding, its will is different than my will, <clears throat> yet it recognizes that which Hashem says is good and proper, and it obeys and does what it's supposed to. And when you study the vastness of the spiritual world, then explains the Rambam, you recognize that you're a tiny, tiny flea compared to Hashem, and you begin to understand the majesty of our Creator. And I believe that that reason alone, it's worthy for us to stop from our very materialistic, very physical understanding of the world and focus on the spiritual entity. But there's more to this, I believe, than just that. And the Silas Sharim in the first parak explains that not only did Hashem create man and give him the keys to creation, not only did Hashem put man into Gan Eden and say, this is your world. Pay careful attention. If you use it properly, it'll, it'll be elevated. If you don't, it'll be destroyed. It explains the Silas Sharim that that's every man. I too am a man. As small as I am, as insignificant as I may be, I too was created in the image of Hashem. And I too, when I use the world appropriately, I elevate it. If I sit on a chair and use it as a support for what it's supposed to do, it's not just I who grow. The chair becomes more elevated, more proper, more holy. The table becomes a dovish of It changes. The spiritual force in it gets lifted. And if I use the world inappropriately, then it's the opposite. And when you recognize that I, as small as I may be, am directly involved in keeping parts of the world alive and in existence, keeping them elevated or the opposite, you begin realizing that life isn't as simple as we used to think. If you took a man from the 1850s and showed him a microscope of today's era, and you showed him microbiology, the complexity, he'd be awed, he'd be astounded. <clears throat> if you and I were to see the world with the eyes <clears throat> of a malach, and we were to see the effects, if I use the world properly, it becomes elevated, <clears throat> the chair, the table, the ground, the car that I drive, the house that I live in, and if the opposite, <clears throat> it becomes destroyed, we'd recognize that so many of these spiritual forces are cheering for us. Meaning to say, if every physical entity has a malach, has a sar, and whether it exists or not is dependent upon me, and it has a will, and it desires to continue to exist, and screams out, come on, let's go, learn, grow, accomplish, do what you, oh, don't, Lashonar, what are you doing, stop! And if you could imagine a hundred million cheering fans, ah, let's go, let's go, let's go! And you'll say to me, come on, Rabbi, that's, that's a height of folly. That's, that's ludicrous. From a materialistic, physical perspective, it's ludicrous. As if you were to take a man from the 1850s and tell him that he himself is a murderer, that he's spreading the germs, he's taking the parasites from the dead body, and he's putting them into the healthy women. I don't see it. I don't even mean parasites. What are you talking about? Germs, bacteria. What are you talking about? I can't see them. I can't smell them out here. And what Chazal described to us is a world, a spiritual world that's so more vast, 
so more complex and it's dependent upon you and I. And when I use this world properly, the spiritual entities cry out, yeah, let's go. You helped us, you improved us, you made us grow. And if we don't, then it's the exact opposite. However, <clears throat> these concepts are remote and hard for us to feel. <clears throat> and I'll share with you why. The single biggest mistake that we make is we view ourselves as physical entities. Listen, I'm, a, I'm alive. I'm a human being. I'm a physical entity. Granted, I have occasional spiritual you know, experiences, maybe on, on Shabbos, on Yom Kippur, if I'm dominating, learning, you know, I, I could have a spiritual experience, but I am a physical entity, occasionally having spiritual experiences. And nothing could be further from the truth. I am not a physical entity occasionally having spiritual experiences. I, the one who thinks, the one who feels, am a spiritual entity right now, temporarily having a physical experience. <clears throat> Before I was here, Hashem took me from under the Kisei covered, from under the throne of glory, put me into this body for a few short years and said, accomplish, grow. It's going to be a difficult challenge. <clears throat> You're going to be blinded. But who you are for eternity and the world that's dependent upon you will be what it is based on what you choose. But the I who am speaking to you am not a body. I'm not a physical entity. I am completely, utterly spiritual. And if you focus on this, I and a malach are almost identical. You see, we think of angels. I can't see them. I can't relate to them. Ophanim v'chayas kodesh. Who knows what they are? They're like you and I, minus the blinders. They're like you and I with the same will, with the same understanding, maybe they have greater understanding or lesser understanding depending on who they are, who we are, but the same separate identity that I am from you, they are from us. And you have to focus on this and you have to really understand this. But when you do, you look at the world very differently. A very quick Musra exercise. Here's the following question. If you focus on this question, I think it will be very helpful to bridge the gap. Here's the question. Mitzvah one day, hopefully many years from now, but Mitzvah one day you're going to be in Gan Eden, right? You're going to be in the, in the world to come. You're going to be sitting there. Here's the question. In Gan Eden, what color are your eyes? Right? What, color, what color are your eyes going to be in Gan Eden? Is it going to be blue or brown or hazel? What color? And the answer is no color. Because in the world to come, my body, which is the shell, which is the coat, <clears throat> has been put in the ground long ago. I, the one who thinks, the one who feels, separate, and I stand in front of Hashem, and then for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. But again, <clears throat> my body isn't me. <clears throat> my body is the coat, my eyes, my arms, my legs are all things that I wear. <clears throat> and when I separate, I and a malach are then almost identical. Meaning to say the body that I temporarily occupy that blinds me while I'm in here is a temporary thing. When I leave it, the same I who thinks, who feels, who remembers will be there. And I then will be very similar to a malach. Again, depending on how I use my time, depending on what I did or didn't do, will determine whether I tower over them or if I humbly am mutilated and tiny compared to them. 
But the reality is that I and all of these spiritual entities are identical. And now we come to the crux of the issue. What did we lose when the base of Migdash was destroyed? A building, eights and vavanim, rocks and stone. What we lost was a clarity, a brilliant understanding. Hashem was present. And when Hashem was present, every Jew who went there felt Hashem's presence, recognized reality, and not the physical material reality, the reality of spirituality, the reality is that I'm in Hashemah. They saw Hashem on whatever level they were on. They felt it. And the base of Migdash was the spiritual furnace, the electric dynamo that pumped out spirituality into the world. It was a vastly more holy, vastly different world. It was easier to experience Hashem. It was easier to be a thinking, rational, growing person. Obviously, there were other advantages. The Karbonos brought us closer or got rid of Averas. But it was an entity. The base of Migdash was a place that poured forth spiritual energy, that brought light to the world, that changed mankind's understanding. You didn't have to accept it. You still had free will. But there was that dynamo pumping out spirituality, and every person got it. Ancient man saw the sun and saw the spiritual entity of the sun. Mankind today, in his vast sophistication, understands the physical world very well. But he's blinded to the spiritual world. Being alive in a time of the base of Mikdash meant that Hashem was there, that you got to go three times a year and be there and feel Hashem's presence. You got to be closer. You got to fix up whatever you did wrong. You got a course direction. More than anything, the base of Mikdash was that energy source that brought Kedusha, holiness, spirituality to the world, and it changed reality. If you're in a dark room and you can't see anything, you bump into the table, you trip over the chair, and then someone turns on the light. Oh, wow, everything changes. Nothing changes in the room. The chair is the same. The table is the same. The walls are the same. But now you see, physically, it's the same. <clears throat> but it's a vastly different experience. The Rambam tells us, the <clears throat> Mashiach comes, Olam Kimen Hago Nohig. The world will be in the same way <clears throat> as it is today. You'll still take a seed, plant it in the ground, and out will come corn. You'll still go to work. The key distinction between now and then is Malaya Arts Day as Hashem. The whole world will be filled with knowledge. The whole world will see Hashem, understand Hashem, and that idea, that single cognition changes everything. Because then I get it. I see the spiritual world. I see the effects that I bring onto myself and onto the entire world that's dependent upon me. I recognize what Ruchnius is, what spirituality is. I recognize the value of a mitzvah, the damage of an Avera. I see Hashem's presence and I desire nothing but to be close to Hashem, to grow, to accomplish. Physically, very little changes, but like that dark room where the light goes on and everything suddenly changes. That was the base of Mikdash on a lesser level for hundreds of years. And certainly that's what we yearn for now. Mashiach coming world will be even more extreme and like the sun at midday and ultimately that is what we as a nation we as individuals desperately crave for i think this rashi is teaching us a fundamental concept what yeshaya was doing was closing up the loophole because what moshe did was he called shemayim varitz he called the heavens and earth to be witnesses it means that spiritual counterpart and he was saying to them you warn the jewish nation they recognize you they see you you will bear witness 
But Moshe used the language that maybe the Shemaim arts could dray out of. They could get off the hook. Why would they do such a thing? Why would they do such a thing is because any spiritual entity, a malach or the nefesh of the stars or the sun or the moon, has a will to live. It's a das, it's a dea, it's an understanding, it's an entity. As I am an entity, as I am unique from you, and I have my thoughts, my desires, my interests, each malach has the same. It's not the theory of mind, it's not one unimind. Each malach has its own understanding, and when each malach sees Hashem and sings kadosh, 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 because it as an individual recognizes the glory of Hashem, it sings out honor and praise to Hashem, and that's a great accomplishment. Ancient man was far more sophisticated than we. We understand the physical world, we don't understand the spiritual world, so things like the base Migdash, Karbanas, are almost, they don't have the meaning to us. The more we grow, the more we accomplish, the more we think in these terms, the more we recognize that we become more sophisticated and we change our understanding, we change our course in life. And I want to close with one last thought. What was the rest of the story? Ignat Semmelweis, at the tender age of 29, made this discovery. He discovered what was killing these women. He discovered it and he solved the problem. The chlorine wash demanding that every physician washes his hand fully in a bath of chlorine, killed the contaminant, and he stopped the problem in that hospital that he was in. And he then had a job in another hospital, and he repeated the same results, and he repeated it a third time. So what was the end of the story for Ignat Semmelweis? Well, the end of the story wasn't so pretty. You see, he began communicating with other physicians, with other medical professionals about what he discovered but it was so radical and so unheard of that it wasn't accepted and even though students of his published papers there were so many antagonistic other physicians and other medical boards that his opinion wasn't accepted and the job that he held in the vienna general hospital he lost they threw him out he got another job in the hospital he lost that job he got another one and he lost that and he couldn't practice medicine as a regular physician. Finally, at the age of 40, he wrote a book. And the purpose of this book was to show details, to show the studies, and he knew that he would save the lives of tens of thousands of women. And guess what? The book wasn't accepted, it was rejected, and it was ignored. And it got to the point that his frustration built and built, and he kept trying to tell the world, and he kept trying to tell people what was happening, but no one recognized it. He eventually started working more and more, became more and more fatigued. At the age of 45, he was committed to an insane asylum, and he was beaten to death in that insane asylum. He died unknown. Pasteur came along not long after, listed after him, and medical science discovered that which Semmelweis had recognized earlier. Now they have medals, now they have monuments in his honor, he died a complete no one. And my friends, the message of that really is quite simple. <clears throat> when you focus on this, you pay attention to dominating, you see the Sarm Volfanim, you see the holy celestial beings, <clears throat> no one understands you're going to come back to a physical world where you and I and everyone else doesn't see it. <clears throat> you're going to say to yourself, what, is that real? It's so real when I'm there. <clears throat> it's so real, I could touch it, I could, but I come back to this world and it's so illusionary. And that's the secret to this world. 
I am an ashama. <clears throat> I am a pure spiritual entity put into this body, but in this body, <clears throat> I'm blinded. I'm put into these heavy, heavy layers of physicality, and it doesn't allow me to see. <clears throat> I can't see the spiritual world. Occasionally, I get glimpses. <clears throat> Occasionally, I feel it, but then I come back to reality. I say, what? Come on. If it's not tactile, if I can't touch it, feel it, move it, it doesn't exist. And ultimately, that is the battle <clears throat> of life. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu bring us quickly to the final redemption, may this be the last Tishbov that we as a nation unfortunately celebrate.